It's Wednesday, July 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Olympic shocker as Team USA gymnast Simone Biles pulls out of the team finals to focus on her mental health. She left the competition after one rotation on the vault in what was originally described as a medical issue. She returned to cheer on her teammates and later opened up about the stress she was feeling. Team USA went on to win a silver medal with the Russian delegation winning gold. Oriana Gonzalez, reporter at Axios, joins us to talk about Simone Biles and the mental health of elite athletes. Next, the CDC has issued new guidance saying that everyone should wear masks in certain high-transmission indoor areas regardless of vaccination status, as well as universal masking for schools. This comes as the Delta variant continues to spread throughout the country. Public health officials are also worried that more variants could be on their way and the system to sequence the genetic mutations of the virus isn't ready to track them. The U.S. is only sequencing about 10% of all COVID cases and more needs to be done so that another variant doesn't catch us by surprise. Cynthia Coons, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before, and I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back, went a little bit better, but then once I came out here, I was like, no, mental is not there, so I just need to let the girls do it and focus on myself. Joining us now is Oriana Gonzalez, reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Oriana. Thank you for having me. wanted to catch up on the Olympics. On Tuesday, everybody was waking up to quite a surprise when we heard that Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles, pretty much the leader of Team USA Gymnastics for this Olympics, had decided to not compete in the women's team final. The, originally, we heard it was a medical issue. And then as the day progressed, we started finding out that she stepped aside uh, due to her mental health and well-being. So, Oriana, what are we hearing about what happened with Simone Biles? Yeah, so Simone Biles, we saw this morning, she was competing on the vault during the women's team final. She had planned to do this very complicated move, but she said that she lost her bearings in the air. And then we saw her kind of struggle with the landing. Afterwards, she actually left the competition area with a medical examiner after one rotation. And then USA Gymnastics confirmed that she was actually pulling out from the team finals due to medical issues, which Biles later said it was for her mental well-being, that she wanted to put her mental health first and that she was not in the best place mentally to perform the way that she would like to. You know, in subsequent interviews now that she's done, she said she didn't want to be a distraction to her teammates. But, you know, in social media posts and just interviews that she had been doing, she kind of had been alluding to the pressure for some time, just saying she just feels like she has the weight of the world on her shoulders when it comes to this going on right now. So we have to really consider where she's coming from. Athletes this year are competing without the support of an audience. They, like everybody else in the world, had to live through an incredibly unprecedented pandemic. They had to completely change their training, their, their training habits. So we're not witnessing kind of our, our regular Olympics. This is a completely different ballgame. And for, for Simone Biles, she is a 24-year-old young woman. She's having to deal with this immense amount of stress from the public, from the media, about uh, that, that it's trying to make her kind of – it's trying to make the public see her as like the champion of Team USA. <laughs> right, exactly. And having to deal with that is just – it can be incredibly stressful. 
continuing on that, right? The way she has been portrayed in the media has been quite interesting. The GOAT, obviously. And she is. You know, she is one of the most successful gymnasts Team USA has ever had. But going into it, she has become the team leader. You know, all the other girls on the team are a lot younger. They do look up to her and all. And really, she's taken on multiple roles throughout all of this. And we've been talking about mental health and elite athletes very much recently. You know, Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open due to the pressures of and, and wanting to get her mental health in order. So this has kind of been an ongoing theme that a lot of the athletes have been dealing with. And to your point as well, there's no audience. So there's no hype up moment. It's these smaller circles. It's just your teammates that you have there with you. It's incredibly relevant that it's happening right now, because as you said, there's been this huge focus, just this huge conversation on mental health and sports. You know, not only Naomi Osaka, but earlier this month, as you know, we had Shakari Richardson simply say that she was human for having to deal with her mother's death. And now we have Simone Biles, who, again, as you said, is the, is the leader of the gymnastics team. She's kind of the ultimate champion of Team USA saying that she wants to put her mental well-being first. So this is what we're seeing, what they're sending is definitely a message about how much pressure athletes are really put under. In this case, how stressful it can be to be in the Olympics. I'm glad you brought up Shakari Richardson because now we have three different examples of mental health affecting these athletes. And the reaction has been different across the board. When Naomi Osaka dropped out of the French uh, Open, she you know, she received a lot of criticism. They said, you know, how can you do that? You're just doing media interviews. When Shakari Richardson dropped out of the Olympics due to uh, testing positive for marijuana, the reaction was different. A lot of people were on her side saying, you know, it's a dumb rule. She shouldn't be penalized for something like that. Other people fell on the side of, well, she broke the rule. She should be penalized. And with Simone Biles right now, we're seeing a lot of support, a whole bunch of support. Athletes all over the place are saying good on her for realizing that she had to step away from this. This is certainly not the first time that we're talking about mental health in sports and athletics. I remember uh, Michael Phelps for years had been talking about him having to deal with his mental health with the amount of pressure that he was put under as one of the best American athletes or just athletes around the world. So we're seeing all these different reactions because, again, even though it's not the first time that we're talking about it, and it, will, it certainly won't be the last, People are really starting to listen, trying to take into account what's happening. And as we know in athletics, physical injuries in athletics have always been seen as kind of more important. So we have all of these major figures now saying that their mental health, what's happening internally, is just as relevant. Let's finish off the story because Simone Biles did drop out. The rest of the girls went on to compete and they did a great job. They ended up getting silver in the tournament there, the Russian delegation ended up winning gold. So how did that all uh, end up playing out? As you said, the, the Russian gym, gymnast, who, as we know, Russia is actually competing at the Russian Olympic Committee, they ended up taking home the gold. U.S. got silver and Britain got bronze. And something that happened, actually, that I think is so important to mention is that after Simone Biles actually left, she came back to the floor not to participate, but to completely support her teammates, who after she left were put under a lot more pressure because Simone Biles kind of had like the seniority of having been in the Olympics Games before. And she had to remind them that they had trained just as hard, that they deserved to be there just as much, much as she did, and that they were going to do great no matter what happened. 
she went on to uh, Instagram, I think it was, and posted just saying how proud she was of her teammates, that they stepped up when she couldn't herself, further acknowledging all that stuff, that how much she was struggling. So, you know, the Olympics always provide so many storylines, and this is a continuing one, as we've been talking about mental health and athletes, a, a continuing storyline in sports and one for the Olympic Games this time. So, you know, we'll continue to monitor how everything turns out. And then, you know, she might be participating again. We'll see. The individual all-around tournament is coming up soon. So who knows if she'll participate there. Oriana Gonzalez, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We need to unify the efforts that are going on around the country and really work our way into some communities where the, the sequencing isn't getting done and allocate resources to do this really comprehensively. Joining us now is Cynthia Coons, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about tracking the virus. We're hearing a lot about variants a lot right now. The Delta variant is very concerning, but there are a number of other ones. But one of the things that we've heard about throughout the pandemic really is how bad a job we're actually doing about sequencing the genomes of the virus right now, following it and tracking it as best as we can. You know, in a lot of cases, by the time a variant is already taken hold or is really starting to spread real fast, you know, we're barely coming up on it. We're barely finding the sequencing for it. And uh, part of it is, you know, there's a handful of labs across the country that are working on it, but there's just not enough, at least here in the United States. So, Cynthia, help us walk through some of what we're seeing with this. Yeah, it's pretty surprising, actually. We have the technology. We do have labs up and ready to go. And there are people, very motivated scientists, willing and interested in doing this work. There just isn't a lot of money for it. And so one of the problems with genetic um, sequencing is that it's not paid for by insurance. So when, if you were to go get a COVID test, that might be covered by insurance. But the next step of taking that sample from the lab that tested you into a lab that would then do the genomic sequencing isn't covered. It has to be funded. Basically, typically, it's funded through public health and government money. And public health is chronically underfunded in this country. And this just falls into that bucket. So Outside of the public health realm, the other labs that exist to do this work are academic labs and some commercial labs that decided to just do it themselves and pay for it themselves because they can't get the funding. And what was remarkable was in the academic community, I just talked to so many smart people who had been ready to sequence and trying to get money for over a year. But there was just they weren't getting grants. They weren't getting money because they were getting denied because money was going towards testing instead. Or there were people who just didn't recognize the need for surveillance early on. And then, boom, we ended up in this situation this year where we could see, and last year we could see Alpha, the UK, a variant, as some were calling it in the beginning, start to take over. And now, of course, we're seeing this with Delta again. So I think it's become really quite clear that we can't waste any time now. We need to unify the efforts that are going on around the country and really work our way into some communities where the, the sequencing isn't getting done and allocate resources to do this really comprehensively. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big worry is if that another dangerous virus comes to the United States, we might be at risk of catching it too late. You know, it's going to take hold really quickly and we're not going to be able to catch up again. You mentioned how you know, a lot of the early money was going into testing and, and all sorts of that. You you actually talk about a lab in Queens, New York, uh, the Pandemic Response Lab, and they started off as a big testing lab. 
then everything kind of started dying down now. And then they moved into trying to sequence the genomes of this thing. They kind of just did it on their own. There was no direction for them to do it. They just saw the need for it and were doing it for free for quite a while as well, too. Yeah, that was really amazing. When I first got acquainted with them, I'd seen their data in an analyst note, and they had already captured that there was a certain type of mutation in a lot of uh, cases in New York City. And that mutation was important because it meant that if a patient had that mutation, if you gave them monoclonal antibodies, which is a type of treatment that's given to certain earlier stage patients, those wouldn't work. Basically, there was a mutation a couple months ago, very evident, it was very evident that that was working its way around monoclonal antibodies. So that was very important data. And so I thought, oh, let me, let me reach out to these guys and see what they're doing. And what I came to find was that they were not able to get the money from anywhere else to set up sequencing, but they were so motivated, partly by the scientific connections they had and some of the people they had hired, that they decided to just pay for it out of their own pocket. And so the company that started the Pandemic Response Lab, they're actually like a robotics um, lab supply company. So they had machines. That was one thing that they had going for them. And their business obviously benefited from some of the ramp up in, in laboratory testing during the pandemic. So they had some funding to work with, but it's just remarkable that we were relying on a, a large chunk of New York City sequencing happening through a group that was just doing it because they, it was the right thing to do. You mentioned uh, a little bit about why the sequencing is so important, but everybody's kind of goals of using that sequencing data is different. You know, on the federal level, they might have different goals on using that data and even more, you know, smaller, more granular, you know, state and local governments might have different ideas with that. But tell us a little bit about about why it can be helpful, because in the long term, pharmaceutical companies can start planning booster shots, things like that, which we've already seen Pfizer and Moderna saying we might need these but they need to know which way the virus is mutating so that they can plan for that. Yeah, so it's interesting. When we talk about national priorities and local priorities, of course there's this overarching priority of ending the pandemic. But on a national level, there's only so much they can do because we have a system where states run their health departments. So each state has its own health department, and that's why we've had different masking rules or school rules or, or so on and so forth. We've had a lot of different regulations, so in, even in neighboring states. So that's just the way we set up our system here, and that's a that that creates you know some some impediments for the CDC to say go out and tell states to do X, Y, or Z because states have the opportunity and autonomy to make some decisions themselves. So at the end of the day, the local level, what you really want is you want your sequencing information fast enough so you're getting the data back in time to say, oh, wait a second, something's happening. We have a new mutation in this community because it's not as though you discover a mutation, by the way. A scientist wouldn't find one and immediately say, like, oh, we've got X, Y, or Z mutation. What they're discovering is a change in a disease that's oh, a virus that's constantly changing, but they're discovering it enough time to say that, oh, this is significant because they're also seeing the manifestations in the population of people say maybe more people are getting sicker or they're getting more severely ill when they get sick or it's a different age patient population. So they can sort of say, okay, this is happening. So this is really important to note because it underscores why you need more and more sequencing. You can't figure this out with just one or two samples here or there. You need a lot of this going on. But then they can do things like say, okay, we may need to reenact masking measures or we may need to I don't know, do school closures when there's a quarantine instead of just quarantining a classroom. I'm, I'm just, you know, spitballing here, right, but right. there's public health measures that they could use. But the most critical thing is there has to be enough sequencing going on and fast enough, because right now the data is coming back in some places in two weeks, three weeks, the patient, you know, patient zero 
and all their contacts maybe out of isolation already. And so we're not getting the data fast enough to figure out how to, to do anything with it that could actually change the course of the pandemic. How much sequencing are we doing right now in the United States? So the CDC estimates we're doing about 10%, which is actually a good level from just the strict, there's sort of these public health rules of thumb. Like we should be doing some say 5%, some say 10% of all positive samples to know what's going on. The problem with a country as big as the United States and something that quite a few scientists have pointed out to me is 10% as a rule of thumb doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. Because what we really need to make sure is happening in the U.S. is that we're getting enough samples from enough different places. So maybe we're sequencing really aggressive in, I don't know, Wyoming is actually a state that stands out that's doing a lot of sequencing, but it's a very small population. So we need to make sure that we're getting sequencing, say, North Dakota is doing sufficient sequencing. Or right now I've got Missouri and Arkansas, states that we need to have a lot of sequencing going on because their caseloads are rising really quickly. So saying 10% at the federal level, it's kind of hard to parse because their data that they give out, it's, it's not that clear cut exactly how much they're getting from what jurisdiction. And so in jurisdictions where they're not getting that much sampling data, they're lumping it with other states. And so that becomes harder and harder to interpret in terms of what's going on where. So the sequencing, the genetic sequencing has not been a big priority for some time, but the Biden administration did announce already some funding for this. I guess it's $1.7 billion in funding to make more of a priority of this. How is that going to be used? So there are a couple of different ways that money is going to be spent. Some of it's going to be spent on the state health departments, which is good. That's a really good way to allocate money because they need more equipment. They need more space. They need to be able to make hires, you know, have long-term bigger staff, et cetera. So that's a good thing. Then there's different chunks of money that are going towards things called centers of excellence. That actually, I think, is really quite meaningful, even though it's a little bit academic. It is partnerships between academic labs and state health labs. But what I found is that academic labs have a ton of capacity, but they have a really hard time getting funding or have had in this crisis. So that's going to be really important. But the CDC said that that money is not for the centers of excellence, not coming until fiscal 2022. And then the last piece is what they're calling a national bioinformatics superhighway. And that's to help make the communications a lot quicker because, see, the goal or the dream here that one scientist said to me, and I think it's really a perfect analogy, is what we want is, say, like the National Hurricane Center style map where you or I could log on and say we had a trip planned to Missouri and then we take a look at the data and say, like, okay, wait a second, I know what's going on right now and I know X or Y or Z mutation is there and I maybe don't want to make that decision. That data should also be in the public's hands and there's been – a bit of a reluctance, I think, to make public data publicly available that quickly. I don't know if it's a reluctance or just a lack of, say, tools that have been built to do that. But I think that's got to be another priority. But the CDC has said that that is a multi-year project. Yeah. So it's probably not coming anytime soon. Unfortunately, right? A system like that would be super helpful, as you said, just for a planning, purely planning thing, you know, for the public. But hopefully this is becoming more of a priority now, you know. For a lot of people, you know, the vaccines came and we thought the pandemic was getting under control and the Delta variant is really kind of wreaking havoc in a lot of the unvaccinated population. So it is something that we need to turn our attention to to continue monitoring how the virus is mutating. So hopefully we do get a handle on all of that. Cynthia Coons, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.